Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. He's been here. been there. Magic down the middle, just what I thought. A hook shot at 12. Good! He's been everywhere. Shot from there and a save and a rebound. Score! Yes! Kings win the cup! Sobel. It's one small step for man. Ted Sobel. One giant leap for man. The man, the myth, the legend. What the hell's going on out here? Now, it's time for Ted Sobel. Well, thank you, Vin Scully, and how apropos as we are joined by the real boys of summer today on this special Touching Greatness podcast, Vin Scully and Carl Erskine from the 1950 Brooklyn Dodgers. Erskine in his third year then with the Dodger organization, eventually having six straight seasons of double-digit wins. And, of course, 1950 was the rookie season for the new Dodger voice as Vin Scully joined Red Barber and Connie Desmond on the Dodger broadcast. And now this gives me the great opportunity to link these two gentlemen together for the first time in several years. I've been working on this for a while, and it is just a joy to have them on Touching Greatness here on the Podcast Network. So without further ado, let's let technology take over from here. And what better way to enjoy the dog days of the baseball season than to bring Vince Scully and Carl Erskine together. Vince, say hello to Carl. Hello, Carl. Hello there. How are you? <laughs> Vinny, my goodness. What a nice uh, what a nice afternoon surprise. Yeah, well, give my love to Betty and Jimmy and trust you're doing well. Uh, we are very well. Good. And uh, what a pleasure, Vinny. You know, I remember you so well in 1950. Uh, you came to the ballpark and I said, this kid's a pup out of Red Barber. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had the red hair anyway. Yeah, you were redheaded. I said, you know, it's just, it's just too much. I mean... Uh, two redheads. Right. But, uh, right. Well, he, I think he taught me well by example, and uh, I survived doing it for 67 years and then decided I'd had enough ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, you, you, would, uh, you would have uh, a volume. You wouldn't have a book. You'd have a volume of books about what you have seen been a part of uh, in your 67 years. Yeah, uh, probably. And a Hall of Famer. Uh, yeah. I'm never going to write one, so it doesn't make any difference. Well, you've sort of written one already because... Well, maybe yeah, in invisible ink, right? Well, <laughs> people's lives, you know, you don't realize that people's lives are affected by uh, voices, uh, oh sure, especially the radio, especially in the radio years. But uh, I went to Yankee Stadium for an old timers game once, and when they uh, Joe DiMaggio got a ten minute ovation, and that was supposed to be the biggest. But Tilly uh, introduced Mel Allen, and he topped DiMaggio. Wow! <laughs> well, isn't that amazing? Amazing. <laughs> Vinny, can I do a formal uh, introduction here so we can just do the two stories that Carl wants you to tell 
and he'll. You uh, guys can talk sure, about if it. If I can remember them, <laughs> I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> no problem. I want to welcome to Touching Greatness a combination of two of my favorites from the 1950 Brooklyn Dodgers, which was three years before I was born. So, guys, I appreciate you joining us, Vin Scully, Carl Erskine. It is such a pleasure to have you on with us. And Carl, you remind Vin of a couple of stories that you say only he can tell. Well, I tell you, the first one that comes to mind is when I saw Vinny recently, like in the last couple of years, uh, being interviewed, and he had a baseball in his hand, and he was tossing it up and down and catching it as he was uh, making his remarks. So, Vinny, you remember coming to the bench in Evans Field. It was happened to be uh, in, in uh, June 19th, 1952, yeah, and I, I was did. scheduled scheduled a pitch, and I was tossing a baseball up and down. You and, got that right. And was, what did uh, I say to you? You were going up against the famous hitter, hitting pitcher named Willard Ramsdell, who <laughs> probably could not hit me. <laughs> and uh, I sat down before the game, and we were just chatting because uh, Carl still had a few minutes before he went down to warm up in the bullpen, and I had time before I had to go upstairs. We had three announcers, myself, Red Barber, and Connie Desmond, so there was no rush for me to go upstairs. And Carl was just kind of flipping the ball a little bit in the air and catching it and flipping it and catching it. And he said, you know, Vinny, I wonder what this ball has in store for me today. <laughs> And I never forgot that. And I went up to the booth, and all of a sudden, Carl is pitching a no-hitter. And whenever I think I did the the fourth inning and the seventh inning, so you don't take it very seriously in the fourth inning when he, no one's allowing anything. But when you get into the seventh inning, things are pretty interesting. And during the seventh inning, I remembered sitting alongside of Carl before the game. And I remembered also what he had said, how Carl sat there flipping the ball, saying, I wonder what is in store for me today. And, of course, the last couple of innings, that was the only thought. This ball has some magic in store for today. But in the course of the game, Willard Ramsdell, who had been with the Dodgers, he was a very funny guy, one of those who didn't like, well, he didn't care seriously about life, I don't think. He just laughed his way through it. Anyway, he was the opposing pitcher, and to say he was a poor hitter was giving him credit. And don't you know, Carl walked Willard Ramsdell, and I almost fell out of the chair up in the booth, and that was the only man to get on base. So that ball had a lot in store for Carl, and of course, it was worthy of him and his great talents. I will. I had uh, Carl describe a ball for me. Uh, what does this ball have in store for me today? I think I have it somewhere under some socks or wherever you put autograph balls. <laughs> That's great. And you have another. Really was uh, oh, excuse me. Go ahead, Carl. You you had another story though that you wanted Vin to recall that you said only he could tell. Well, yeah, that was later. Just a, a sidelight on that uh, no-hitter against sure. the Cubs. 
it did rain in the middle of that game, and uh, right. we played bridge uh, in the clubhouse. <laughs> I made four hearts, uh, and they called us back and finished the game with a no-hitter uh, with a bridge game in the middle. So that was <laughs> another another surprise. Well, yeah, uh, in 1952, um, we played the Yankees, as usual, in those years in the World Series. And I'd started game two and uh, got beat by Rashi. Uh, then I was up again for game five, and uh, that was back in Yankee Stadium. So I was going to pitch uh, the fifth game, and a telegram on my stool in uh, Yankee Stadium uh, clubhouse said, uh, good luck on this fifth game of October, uh, and uh, uh, on the 5th of October in the fifth game of the World Series, and uh, congratulations on your fifth wedding anniversary. And Vince and uh, Red Barber were in the clubhouse talking to the players before the game, getting tidbits to use up in the booth. And I showed uh, Vinny uh, that uh, telegram uh, from a friend of mine in Texas. And uh, he said, let me take it up the booth. It might come in handy. So, Vinny, uh, we we were doing fine, four to nothing. I was leading until, guess what, the fifth inning. Well, it and was incredible. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget the string of fives. Uh, it was the fifth game. It was Carl and Betty's fifth anniversary. It was October the 5th. The Dodgers leading four to nothing. Believe me, the Yankees scored five runs in the fifth inning. When the game ended, I remember looking up at the clock in center field and it was five minutes past five. Oh, wow. So, so that was as many fives as I've ever seen involved. And I believe we won that game, right? That game won 11 innings. And my roommate, Duke Snyder, uh, knocked in the uh, lead run. And we won the ball game 6-5. 6-5. to five. Six to five. And, When Dresden so came to the mound. That's as many fives as you'll find <laughs> on one game. <laughs> That is Justin great. came to the mound uh, after Mize hit a three-run homer. Uh, that capped the five-run inning, and he, he left me in the game, which surprised the world, including me, uh, to give up five runs and the uh, manager leave you in the game. But after the Mize home run, I was able to, believe me, a, a miracle, get the last 19 in a row uh, and I, when I struck Bear out to end the game. Uh, it was a six to five win, and look made made uh, Charlie Dresson uh, look like a miracle worker. That's a great story. Yeah, I've never I've never seen anything close to the string of fives that day. Beautiful story, guys. Vin, for those of us who didn't see Carl pitch, can you just tell us how good was he, and what did he mean to that team in Brooklyn? Well, I think more than anything, he was an inspirational player. He was using the word classy. He was one of the classiest players I've ever met. It was no surprise when he no longer played. I think he became the vice president of a bank in Indiana. Uh, he was that kind of a man you could trust. You'd have everything to say about him was plus as a player, as a pitcher, but even more so as a teammate and a human being. He was outstanding. And, of course, he had some great pitches, and uh, eventually they paid off as they should have 
for a great guy. Yeah, uh, I don't think anyone who ever saw or heard a couple of broadcasts of the Dodger games in the early 50s will ever forget Carl Erskine. And in Brooklyn, they always called him, I guess on purpose, Oisk, <laughs> O-I-S-K. So it was either Oisk or Carl Erskine, but outstanding. And I would say that anywhere at any time, not just because Carl on the phone. Well, you know, you know who agrees with you, Vinny? Betty. My mother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would agree with your mom. <laughs> and people forget, too, well, Vin, Carl's the first pitch in Los Angeles as well at the Coliseum. Yeah. The years go flying by, don't they? Yep. It's oh, unbelievable. Boy. Yeah. Well, it was a, a historic moment uh, in, in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, an interesting thing nobody knows, I never told the story. Austin called me in before that start against, uh, there were about 80,000 close to it in the Coliseum. That day, and we were playing the Giants, of course, who was our great rival in New York. And uh, Jim Davenport was a rookie, and he'd had a hot spring in Arizona, so uh, we had not seen him in spring training. So Olsen called me in, and he said, uh, I know I, I, I'm not going to ask you to do this, Carl. Uh, I'm going to order you to do it. <laughs> I want you to get a strike on Davenport, and I want him flat. I want you to knock him down with the oh, second boy. pitch. Wow. That was how that game started, and uh, and and nobody. I never told that story because I was never proud of a knockdown pitch. I I always said it was a non-plus. It could never have any advantage. You're not going to scare a major league hitter by knocking him down. You're going to make a 220 hitter, a 500 hitter, the next two or three pitches. So, uh, but I did. I got a strike on uh, Davenport. Uh, I thought about the first pitch all night. Uh, I want the first strike, pitch to be a strike. It was a fastball strike. And the next pitch, I did flatten Davenport. And you know what? He got up, picked up his cap, dusted himself off, found his bat, got back in the batter's box, and singled off of the screen in the left field. <laughs> wow. I looked over at the bench, and Alston just gave me a shrugged shoulder like, so what? He's hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. That's beautiful. Work. I heard that, didn't know about it. Uh, and it would be typical of you, number one, to follow orders, and number two, to have misgivings about the orders. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never I never thought it was smart to throw it a hitter. Uh, first of all, you don't want to hurt somebody. But secondly, uh, it, it just had no, it didn't, it was not, it had no advantage to anything, but... But I, uh, I was ordered four times in my career to throw at a hitter. In fact, in the third game of the World Series in 53, uh, Dressen ordered me to throw at Barra because he said he's, got, he's dug in. Uh, he's trying to loft the ball over that short porch in right field, 297, over the screen. And he said, I want him flat, so give a strike on him, and I want him down. First time up, I got a strike on Yogi, and I hit him in the ribs with a fastball. And uh, so he goes to first base. So I go to the bench, and uh, Dresden says, it's the lousiest knockdown I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, when he comes up again, on him, I want him to, I want you to do it right. The second time Yogi came up, I got a strike on him. This time, I hit him in the elbow. Oh. I hit him twice <laughs> in, in the same game. 
a writer afterwards told me, Carl, that's the first time in World Series history that the same pitcher hit the same batter twice in the same game. <laughs> so as far as I know, Yogi and I are linked, maybe not forever, but for a long time, <laughs> with a record in the, in the World oh Series. Oh, my God. Oh. Now, there's another story that's never surfaced. Right. That's well, beautiful. That was, I guess, Dressen was a pup out of DeRocher, and that apparently is the way DeRocher managed all the time. Yeah. Well, it was with Yogi. Yogi and I were good friends. Uh, many times after our careers, we were together at a baseball function. Uh, we always laughed about that. But Yogi did not get mad. He gave me a glance the second time I hit him. But when I went to bat uh, the next inning, he said to me in a real, he had a real deep, dark, uh, kind of a, a really heavy voice. He said, Carl, are you throwing <laughs> at me? Like, like, I don't believe you do that. <laughs> Did you answer him? <laughs> I hit the first pitch and got out of there. Got out of there. <laughs> great. Just great. Vinny, we really appreciate you coming on. It was It's so nice to hear you guys reminisce. And uh, I know it's been quite a while since you've actually spoken to each other, huh? Yes, indeed. Oh, yeah. Too long. A few years. I think 2008 was the 50th anniversary, I believe, of the uh, Dodger move west. And I was there for that anniversary. Uh, that's the last time I was at uh, Dodger Stadium. Wow. And that's it's when I probably. 11 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and uh, well, Vinny was a, a close friend, I felt, uh, aside from the baseball experience. We spent a lot of time on trains and waiting and. Uh, uh, terminals, various places, and I'd always ask Vinny, uh, "Tell me, tell me, give me a good book. Uh, help me pick out a good book." So we'd walk over to a bookstore somewhere in the terminal, and I have uh, three or four books, Vinny, on my shelf. Uh, sea fights and sick, uh, sea fights and shipwrecks is one of them. Uh, oh, yeah. A book by Robert Service, a poet, a poet. I have that. So. I think of you a lot when I go through my books because <laughs> you help me pick out a few. Well, bless your heart. Listen, it's an honor to have spoken with you today, but more so, it really was an honor to see you play, meet you as a human being when the uniform came off, and you become one of my cherished memories of nice people that I've been fortunate enough to spend some time. So be sure to give my love to Betty and to Jimmy, and if it's possible, hug yourself for me, okay? <laughs> Vinny, best to you and your family. And uh, I have a couple of uh, notes from you that I've saved over the years. And uh, the relationship uh, uh, was was uniquely good because those years uh, after World War II, America was uh, great-spirited and uh, the Dodgers, uh, with Jackie, had a team to be remembered. I was so fortunate to pitch for that team and not against it. And uh, so my record definitely has been enhanced by playing for that Dodger team at that time in history. Yeah, it was a great thrill, even for those of us who the best I could do was be on the sidelines and split an infinitive. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, you and Red Barber, uh, you know, that 
the voice was, it's amazing how the voice was, they just charmed people. And uh, Vinny, uh, you've had so many accolades, but um, talk about class. Uh, baseball used to be a rough game. Uh, Mr. Ricky used to tell me in the early years, he said uh, his mother wanted him to get out of baseball. It was such a rough shot business. Uh, he said uh, restaurants would have signs in the, uh, in the window, no dogs or ball players allowed. Oh, boy. Oh, <laughs> well, boy. Well, that changed a lot over the years. Oh, I, <laughs> I thought we had some of the classiest Hall of Famers uh, on that team. Duke was my roommate for about 10 or 11 seasons. And uh, playing with Pee Wee, one of the best pros in the game, uh, and uh, pitching the Campanella over a thousand innings. And you know, uh, one of my all-time favorites that I would put right up there with you was Gil Hodges. Yeah, Gil Hodges, of course, was an Indiana boy, uh, and uh, Gladys Gooding, the organist, with the second most uh, song played at Ebbets Field in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, was back home in Indiana because <laughs> when I would come in to pitch or Hodges hit a home run, she would play back home in Indiana. <laughs> and, then and, Gil, and then Gil would blow a kiss to his wife as oh, he yeah. was touching home plate, his wife Joan, who is still very much alive. Yes, she is. And uh, and, and I think Gil is still alive as I uh, a to the yeah. Hall of Fame, too. I yeah, exactly. Could happen. Vin, yeah. we've talked about it before. Uh, we still don't understand why Gil didn't get in the hall. Well, they're still fighting. We have one last shot. Yep. They're coming up with a documentary. One of the problems, the years have rolled by, and those who vote, most of them today never really saw Gil Hodges play. Yep. And that's a problem. Yeah, but you said all along he's as good as anybody who's ever seen it first, huh? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, we often give Pee Wee credit for playing alongside of Jackie. Gil Hodges played alongside Jackie on the other side. Right. And he was the peacemaker on the infield with those clashes at second base in those early years with Jackie. Could have been a fist fight in a hurry. Hodges was right there pulling them off the pile. And everybody respected Gil. He's big and strong. And he kept the peace on the infield. I know that's not in the statistics, but if you say that Pee Wee is a Hall of Famer, rightfully so, and he played alongside of Jackie and helped him, Gil played alongside of Jackie on the other side and helped him immensely to keep the peace on the infield. Was like, I remember yeah. a vivid picture. The Dodgers were playing Cincinnati, and a fight broke out, and there was a lot of not real fisticuffs, but a lot of pushing and shoving and hollering. And the two strongest men who could have carried Ebbets Field away, Ted Klozuski and Gil Hodges, together took a walk down the right field line. I, I will never forget that. It was like he had two captains. <laughs> well, they, they played hard, but uh, it was a joy to watch them play. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate the time again, Vin, and uh, it's been wonderful. What can I say? Well, thank you for the opportunity, Ted, especially a chance to talk to Carl. I am grateful for that opportunity. Love you, Carl. And they, I, words can't express it, but we know the feeling, and it'll last forever. 
And God oh, bless okay. you and your family. Good health forever for you. And just know, Vinny, that you touched more lives probably than any broadcaster in the history of the baseball game. And so, well, how, you know, what is eternal life? Well, it's, being, it's love who you are, love other people, uh, do good in your life, and be an encourager. And you've been all of those. Well, I've been... I have been given a great opportunity, and I just tried to make the most of it, and please God, it was good enough. So love to Betty and Jimmy again, and it's wonderful speaking with you. Thank you, Ted. That's terrible, And Ted, you did a miracle today to get the two voices together that, <laughs> that haven't been together for so many years but have so much in common, and Absolutely. the Dodger experience Vinny, he did golf. He did other things. He could do anything, but his idea is the ideal Vince Scully has Dodgers all over him. And I played for only one team, uh, 14 years in the Dodger organization. I was never traded or sold. And uh, of course, my wife needles me and said, <laughs> maybe they couldn't get rid of you. But I was so fortunate not to be traded or sold and uh, stay with one club. So beautiful. It's a bright day in my life. Thank you both. Hey, it's my and it's Thank my you, pleasure. Sir. Thank you, Vin. And uh, does Carl sound like he's like more like forty than he does ninety-two? Oh, absolutely. He sounds great. Absolutely, and you do too, sir. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. I know. All righty, Bye-bye. take care, Carl. Yeah, Ted. That was fantastic. I think we could have gone on for a long time because absolutely. Well, you know, Vin's came with it to us in nineteen fifty. And I left the club. My last season was 59. So every game, every game I pitched in those 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 years, uh, Vinny covered uh, every big game, every lousy game that I pitched. <laughs> uh, he he had he did them all. So uh, it was remarkable to get to speak with him. That's wonderful. It's a total pleasure. You have no idea how much it was great to hear you guys speak to each other. And I'd like to go over a couple of other things just to get your feel on those days and to let the people know from a different generation what it was like then. First of all, Nuke and Jackie and Joe Black and Campy, what was it like to be around those guys when the blacks were not accepted in baseball and you guys were really in the spotlight. Yeah. You know, if, if somebody, if two people are different in a lot of ways, but the goal is the same. And that was the case of the Dodgers in Brooklyn with blacks and whites. The goal was to play together, to win, to, to be respectful of the game and so in the clubhouse, to my knowledge, and I was there from 48 to 60, I never remember one incident where we had any kind of a racial slur, kidding behind the backs, uh, some kind of uh, inappropriate. Uh, it, it, the color was gone. And uh, Jackie was a fierce competitor and a hot-tempered. He was really... He had a, a lot of the guys in the Negro League said, Jackie won't make it because he's too hot-tempered. To Jackie's credit, 
with Mr. Ricky's charge to turn the other cheek, I saw Jackie demonstrate the greatest self-control of anybody in this world that I've ever known. He, he was fierce inside, but he was on the outside. He honored Mr. Ricky's charge, and it was never a piece of history written or spoken that saw Jackie fight any place. Not in the parking lot, not in the clubhouse, not on the field, not in a restaurant. He contained himself. That's the one mark of Jackie Robinson that is so astounding that he could do that because he took the kind of heat. There's a lot of heat in baseball that's just hard-nosed baseball. But add to that the racists that a few that were on, on the road, the fans and so forth. Uh, Jackie handled that, and I give Rachel credit for that. She was his biggest critic. And his uh, and his big and his biggest strongest supporter, uh, Rachel doesn't get enough credit for helping him through those tough years when it was really rough from the dugout and from the stands. But he did it, and I got to watch most of it. Yeah, just the fact that uh, he was like, you know what? I'm taking on everything here, and I'm accepting whatever it takes because. Uh, he knew he was a pioneer, and whatever he had to do, he did it. Well, self-control was it. Yep. Mr. Ricky made it plain to him yep. that if you fight, or even look like you want to fight, the experiment that we're trying to have here will be uh, down the tubes. Uh, now, here's what Mr. Ricky did that he does not get credit. It was one of the most noble, unselfish moves that anybody in the baseball history ever made. Who was the second black player in baseball? I believe it was the gentleman in Cleveland, Larry Doby. Larry Doby. Mr. Rickey, after Jackie came up in 47, Mr. Rickey, knowing that the American League was not integrated, and if, if they went forward with the National League being integrated and the American League being all white, that was going to create the worst kind of comparison in baseball. You got a white leg and a black leg, although it wouldn't have been a black leg. It had been the end, it had been the end leg. Yeah. And Mr. Ricky gave up his second choice, which was Larry Doby. He called, uh, he called Cleveland uh, owner. Uh, oh, 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 his name escapes me. Uh, anyway, he called Cleveland and said, "Will you take?" Larry Doby, so both the American League and National League can be integrated at the same time. That was the most unselfish move because Larry Doby was a Hall of Famer, and Bill Veck, who took him and put him on the roster so that the American League was integrated as well as the National League, it saved this awful kind of comparison that you'd have a white leg and a black leg. Mr. Ricky deserves so much credit for that. And, uh, of course, I say that if Larry Doby had been the third outfielder with Ferrillo and Snyder and, and Larry Doby in the outfield, I'd have all those World Series rings <laughs> instead of uh, Yogi. That's interesting. <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's a true story, and it's not gotten any 
mileage for Mr. Ricky, but that was one of the most unselfish things anybody in baseball ever did to save the awful condition of having a white leg and a black leg. And that's what would have happened if Mr. Ricky hadn't given up a Hall of Famer so that both legs could be integrated uh, nearly at the same time. That's phenomenal to hear. That's It's really fascinating to learn from you, Carl Erskine. Uh, you know, you were a rookie in 1948, and I'm wondering what a guy from Indiana was thinking about here you are in Brooklyn, a little different neighborhood than you were used to, right? Well, actually, as it turned out, there were a lot of similarities because we lived in Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, and Duke Snyder lived in the neighborhood with us, and uh, Pee Wee uh, and Rube Walker, uh, Preacher Row, we all lived in Bay Ridge. And that became like a hometown. It was it was like we knew the barber down the street. We knew the deli guy that owned the deli. We we knew uh, the paper boy. I mean, it was like a small town, uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And we were there several years together, I think about a decade. And uh, so for two kids, my wife and I were quite young. I was 21. She was barely turned 20 uh, when we... Um, were called to Brooklyn, and uh, we stayed in a uh, someone, uh, the Peppermans was the name of the family. We stayed in their uh, basement apartment the first year, huh. and uh, uh, it took us a while to uh, get the salary up so we could get a nice place to live in Brooklyn, but we did live in Bay Ridge for several years. That's fascinating. Do you remember the first game that Jackie Robinson played, and what was the aura around the place at the time? Well, of course, I wasn't there in 47. I was in That's Fort right. Worth, which was, it was double A. And uh, Jackie, Jackie played the first season and was uh, elected uh, Rookie of the Year. Uh, uh, phenomenal that the writers would uh, see this uh, exciting player and a talented player and vote him uh, Leonard Coppett was a writer in New York. He I remember Leonard. Day. You remember Leonard? Sure. He used to come Leonard to Los said, Angeles and cover sports. Okay. Well, he, he was there opening day, and he said Robinson being in the lineup opening day was a non-event. It was not nearly the historic uh, thing that eventually it has become because it was an experiment. Yep. That was Mr. Ricky's own uh, own words about trying to break the barrier. Uh, he said it's a, it's an experiment, and he himself wasn't sure it would work. So opening day, I did not see, but Leonard Coppett and other writers said it got a very small mention in the write-up of the game that day. And uh, so the, the, the historic day wasn't recognized until some many decades later that Jackie played, he played great. He became a Hall of Famer. Now listen to this one. The Hall of Fame is a is a very symbolic way to show what Jackie did. All of the plaques in the Hall of Fame are the same color. That's a very telling thing about what baseball did to integrate the game. And not only that, 
uh, helped to integrate much of America. So uh, when you go to Hall of Fame or you see the plaques, you can recognize that Jackie, Campy, uh, uh, all the other great stars that were on that team uh, that have Hall of Fame plaques, they're all the same color. Yeah, Nuke and I used to talk about this uh, uh, quite a bit, actually, and exactly uh, what this meant, not forget about baseball, just what it meant to society. It takes sports to open the eyes of humans sometimes. You know, you know what the comparison to that is? Special Olympics. Um, I've yeah. got a special son, Jimmy. He's been in Special Olympics almost 50 years. And Special Olympics has shown that it's the heart of the sport and it's the dedication and the, and the competition. Uh, and it doesn't matter what level. The highest level is the major leagues. And then at the other end of the spectrum, it's special athletes who are not gifted with high hand-eye coordination or uh, good reflexes, uh, good eyesight. Uh, but they compete just as well, and it shows the genuineness of how sports really reflects what life's all about. Absolutely. A couple other things. I'm wondering, did you ever see Babe Ruth play in person? No, I did not. Did I they? Did not. Was, he was my hero. He was your I hero, was really? I struck him out hundreds of times <laughs> on the on the barn was behind our house, <laughs> and I had a strike zone uh, printed on the side of the barn. And with a tennis ball, I don't know how many times I struck out Babe Ruth. I did, however, get to know Mrs. Babe Ruth oh. because there's a league called the Babe Ruth Baseball. For I think it's boys uh, up to 15 years old. Yeah, it's, yeah it's right after Little League. Right, and. Uh, Mrs. Ruth used to go to the World Series, which was held in some small town around the United States. It came to my hometown uh, in 1965, and we hosted the World Series in Anderson, Indiana. And Mrs. Babe Ruth came and stayed a week, and we hosted her while she was here, Betty and I did. Nice. And my daughter. So we got acquainted with Claire Ruth, and uh, that was that was the closest that I ever got to Babe Ruth. That's great. I'll tell you a quick story, and it's in my upcoming book, Touching Greatness, same as our podcast here. We're talking to Carl Erskine, a longtime Brooklyn and L.A. Dodger pitcher. And, Carl, uh, Babe Ruth was playing when my father was at Yankee Stadium as a 13-year-old selling peanuts and popcorn. Oh, boy. <laughs> so he used to tell me stories uh, how he would uh, – be selling in the stands, and then he would hear that different kind of a roar, and he would stop and just turn around and just watch greatness. Yeah, how about that? Isn't that something? Yeah. Those are beautiful stories, beautiful memories of uh, the sport that's uh, that truly been America's pastime. Uh, yeah, football's big, real big. Uh, pro basketball is big. But in my era, the, the sport was baseball. It was uh, kids growing up now. I don't remember girls playing much baseball, but uh, if you were a boy in America uh, back in my day, the 30s and the 40s, uh, baseball was it. And uh, yep. heroes, names, uh, people, uh, 
uh, people n- named their kids after presidents, but there's a lot of baseball players that people named their kids after as well. Yeah, a lot of kids out there from that era named Willie, Mickey, and Duke, I bet, right? <laughs> you got that. What was that like, by the way, in that neighborhood uh, uh, with that kind of competition? You know, I was at an old-timers game uh, in uh, Shea Stadium one year, way way back. And uh, we all were lined up on the field after we were introduced. And then they said, direct your attention to the center field gate. And it was opening. And they said, through the gate, here comes four of the greatest center fielders ever to play the game. And that was Mickey, Duke, uh, Joe D., and... Uh, and, um, and Willie. Okay, Willie Mays. Yeah. All four of them. Now, I was enough of a kid, even then, being in the big leagues myself, I wanted to run out and get the autograph of those <laughs> four guys. <laughs> <laughs> and here you were long retired by then, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was many years after uh, my playing days. So tell the folks out there, what was it like in Brooklyn when you finally won a title, and Vinny finally said, ladies and gentlemen, the Brooklyn Dodgers are the world champions. I'm going to tell you something that I've never told anybody else. When the game ended, Johnny uh, Padres pitching to Elston Howard, got him to ground out to Pee Wee, and that was the world championship uh, for Brooklyn, the first one and the only. It happened on Yankees' uh, soil it was very very satisfying but we went up the runway into the dodger or the visitors clubhouse at yankee stadium and it was something happened in a moment there that it was so emotional that i had tears in my eyes and it was quiet there was no there was no outbreak of celebration yet for two or three minutes as we went into the locker room it was quiet just about two years ago roger craig who was a rookie on that team told me something that i didn't know anybody else knew he said carl you know what i saw when we went in that locker room i saw peewee with tears in his eyes duke with tears in his eyes jackie with tears in his eyes you had tears in your eyes there was an emotional moment or two of almost reverence that we finally gave our fans a world championship. And uh, then the corks popped and the champagne flowed and the celebration went on. But there was a moment, true moment of true and I think deep gratitude that we finally won that World Series. It probably meant more to the borough of Brooklyn than maybe anything else ever or since. What do you well, think? Well, I'm told, I'm told that uh, there is a, uh, there's a group in Brooklyn that on the date of the win of the World Championship, at the very hour on the clock, <laughs> that there's a countdown in Brooklyn to this day of fans, grandparents of fans, uh, of uh, fans, grandkids of fans, who meet and count down to the very moment of that World Series championship last out. And I think it's still going on to this day. 
Wow. I've never heard that before. That's, that's really wonderful. And just the fact that you were able to share something that was really, truly a once-in-a-lifetime effort. Well, it's, everybody can say in their own way what the golden era of baseball was. I'm sure Cincinnati says the big red machine was the golden era. I'm sure the 27 Yankees and their fans, who most of them would be gone by now, uh, could truly say that the 27 Yankees, that was the golden era. But I can say with plenty of evidence that baseball in the decade from 47 to 57 was the golden era because not only was baseball integrated, but it went from daylight, daytime to night, to lights. It went from radio to TV. It went from trains to planes. It went from East Coast to West Coast, all in that 57, 47 to 57. So to me, that is a true golden era of baseball. That's very well put. And uh, only one team can be called them bums, right? <laughs> Willard, Mug- Willard Mullins uh, coined that phrase. And I remember this uh, ugly bum on the front page of the, <laughs> yes. uh, the New York Daily News. Who's a bum? <laughs> <laughs> that is so great. By the way, I looked it up. Um, I was really curious. I was totally unaware, so I had to do my own little bit of research. There are still two more guys remaining from the 1950 team when Vinny was there his first year. And, of course, you were already an old, uh, in your third year, you were an old veteran by then, by 1950. Bobby Morgan and Tommy Buckshot Brown are still around. Are you aware of that? That's right. Yeah, and then on the 55 team that was the world champions, there's just three of us left, and uh, oddly enough, they're all pitchers. But besides me is Roger Craig, and guess what? Sandy Koufax was a rookie yep. in 1955. He was the baby. So the three of us are the only <laughs> roster players uh, still living. Yeah, and I, uh, I was there in 2005 at Dodger Stadium when you had the uh, 50th anniversary of the 55 uh, championship, and... Wow, I mean, it was just a fantastic get-together, and it's hard to believe that only three of you remain. Yeah. Well, Duke Snyder and I were roommates, and we used to look at the picture of that team, which included the manager, coaches, uh, Bat Boy, sure. included uh, the trainer, included uh, some broadcasters, and all of, those, all of those are gone except the three I just mentioned. And Mr. Scully. <laughs> Well, Vince, yes, i got to put him in there. Exactly. He was, he was there, for sure. Exactly. And by the way, what was Sandy like at the start? Were you another one of those guys that just said, wow, he could throw the ball forever, but he has no idea where it's going. This could be a disaster. Well, I think he was a rookie. You know, what sure. people don't realize, that it shaded everything in our lives in those days. We were all on one-year contracts, and – to stay in the big legs, you have to produce. It's hard enough to get there. But once you get there, you can't stay there if you don't produce. And so all of us were so concerned about our own careers 
that we didn't catch the history of Jackie, uh, all that he was doing. We knew he had a fight on his hands, but uh, we didn't see the significance historically until years later, and uh, neither did America. But Sandy was so quiet, he wouldn't ask a lot of questions. So he kind of, and of course he couldn't go to minors because he'd been paid a bonus of 20000 I think, and the owners had a rule that you couldn't option a, a player to the minors if you paid him a bonus of 20000 or more. And so Sandy Koufax is in the Hall of Fame, but he never spent one day in the minors because he couldn't. And, and so he struggled. Yeah, trying to learn how to pitch on the job until he finally broke out in the in the early '60s and became uh, one of the great pitchers of all time. Were you still around when uh, with the Dodgers when uh, Norm Sherry did his thing and just said, "Hey, Sandy, just throw strikes. You don't have to. You don't have to throw it a thousand miles an hour." Yeah, no, that was right at the end, toward the end of my career. But yeah, I remember that Norm. Norm told him, "You're working too hard." Yeah, and. Uh, Sandy, Sandy had overpowering stuff. There's no question about it. But when he backed off a little and gained control, and I used to throw pitches down the middle, and the batter would swing right through it, and then the batter would instinctively look at the bat like, "What's wrong with this bat? <laughs> Is there a hole in it?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it was because his fastball moved so much, and uh, he threw it right down the middle. The guys couldn't hit it. Yeah, it's just incredible. So I'm proud to say, and it was total coincidence, Carl, that you and I walked off the field together, even though you had no idea who I was, at Vero Beach when we closed the joint uh, just before the Dodgers moved their spring training site to Arizona. And that was a special day for you, too, playing the harmonica uh, for the national anthem, the last one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember that day very well. Hey, you lived there forever, it felt. Well, I went there when uh, Mr. Ricky leased the barracks from the old Naval Air Station. It had been abandoned for a couple of years, so believe me, it was primitive. And the first year, we stayed in the wooden barracks, and uh, I don't think I could count the kind of bugs that were crawling around <laughs> in there, and lizards and... Uh, and there was a small uh, ditch across part of the, the property, and uh, there was an alligator uh, already set up housekeeping in the ditch. And uh, wow. you, we, you would never reach your hand into a bush for a baseball that rolled in there. <laughs> <laughs> never mind. <laughs> and the roads were not paved, so would we go from one field to another, and there were several diamonds laid out on the property and uh, we'd have to run to each place and the dirt roads uh, were how we got there uh, next to the airport in Vero Beach so there were varmints always crossing the road uh, guys would take a, uh, a fungo bat with them somebody in the group yeah. uh, kill snakes along the way <laughs> and uh so it was pretty primitive those first uh, first few years, uh, and Mr. Ricky's dream was fulfilled eventually with a beautiful complex. They tore the 
barracks down after a few years and uh, built a, kind of a village, uh, a nice uh, kind of motel-type yeah. uh, quarters, and uh, you saw all of that. And it turned into now a national uh, historical site. Uh, Peter O'Malley was sex- successful in getting it turned into that. You probably know all this. Yes, um, I do. It's, it's supposed to be a beautiful place. And uh, Major League Baseball now has tied into it yeah. uh, to use it for a variety of things with for baseball. So, uh, yeah, I sweat a lot of blood on those properties there, but <laughs> uh, that was my uh, spring training for 11 of my, no, th- uh, t- 13 of my 14 years in the Dodger system. Wow. I had two years in the minors, and then uh, all my all my spring trainings, uh, save one, the first one, uh, was in uh, Vero Beach, uh, Dodger Town. Oh, where was the first one? In uh, Pensacola. Oh. Well, I, I got to correct that. I was sent to Pensacola to train with a double-A team my first spring training. Okay. Uh, I... I think I think we were in Pensacola, uh, but I never went to the camp because they pulled me out of. I pitched one season in Class B, and um, they moved me to the roster of uh, Fort Worth, which was Double A, and we stayed in the San Carlos Hotel in uh, Pensacola. That was my first spring training, which would have been forty-seven. Okay. Interesting. Well, so that would have been the time you could have shared spring training with Jackie, but you weren't at Vero. Well, 47, uh, the big club trained in Daytona, I believe. Oh, just pre-Vero Beach. Yes. Okay, I didn't remember the timing of that. 48. Now, I'll tell you something I found out later, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't see it. I was pretty young. I was uh, I was just out of the Navy. I was 20 years old. Um, Vero Beach, as a city, had an ordinance that no black person could spend a night in Vero Beach. Wow. Jackie could not stay with the team in the first two or three seasons. And then it was Campanella, Newcomb. They stayed in a town north of Vero Beach, Gifford. Do you know where that Gifford is or ever hear of it? No. It's a black community just north of Vero Beach. And I don't know if they had a black hotel there or whether they stayed in private homes. But for a couple of seasons at least, that ordinance stayed on the books in Vero. Wow. And the black players could not stay with us in the barracks. I didn't know that till I mean... They show up for practice, and you know, I just presume they stayed someplace in, on the base. But uh, that was uh, that was a shock to me. You <laughs> found that out after the fact. Oh yeah, I did. Wow. I didn't know it while it was going on. That is strange. I didn't. Uh, I didn't realize it. I don't think any of us did. Huh. And uh, you you can't capture the culture of the times in the 1940s and earlier. It was understood in America, without having to speak it out loud, that blacks did not go the same places as whites, and they were distinctly marked. So you knew 
if you were in a town and said, don't let the sun set on your head here and use the N-word, that was all across the country. But I never realized that that those early years, be 48, 49, I'd think only a couple of years before they got that ordinance changed. And I'm surprised Mr. Rickey didn't have that done before first spring training, but it was an oversight, apparently. Sure. I wonder how much uh, influence the Dodgers had in that ordinance being overturned. Well, I think there was no question. They must have had an enormous amount of, of uh, influence, but things were happening now. you, you got to kind of know the history, but yeah. after the war was over, President Truman desegregated the military. And I think that was the big clue for Mr. Rickey to go for the go for the desegregation of baseball. The timing had not been good when he was at St. Louis as a general manager yeah. and part owner. He came to Brooklyn, and uh, an ethnic mix in Brooklyn. And I think the factors kind of lined up that with. Uh, Military being desegregated, with Brooklyn being an ethnic mixed community, uh, a lot of Jewish, a lot of uh, Italians, a lot of Norwegians, uh, you name it. I think all those kind of fell in place, and Mr. Ricky must have said to himself, "This this must be the time to do it," oh. and so that was. That was his move to scout. He told his scouts, and you know all this, I'm sure, that there was rumor that Brooklyn was going to have a team in the Negro League called the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. And that was what the scouts thought they were scouting for when they went abroad looking for any black player. They went to Cuba, Mexico, uh, the Negro League. Uh, I played with a guy named Sibio Garcia. He was a shortstop. I played a winter season in Havana, and um, when I was a rookie, when I was my first year, uh, the winner of my first season in pro ball, Mr. Ricky sent me to Cuba. Sibio Garcia was a shortstop, mm-hmm. a big, good-looking guy, but he was in his late thirties, and so he got kind of nixed out because of uh, his. But he was he was black. He wasn't an African American. He was a Castilian, a real handsome guy, big and very, very black. But he was one of Ricky's finalists, but the age canceled him out, I think. Sure, yeah. Interesting. But all those things were happening, I think, gave Mr. Ricky the, the courage to think, you know, of all the times that have passed since 1904, he took a team from... Ohio Wesleyan to Notre Dame to play baseball. He was assistant coach, and he took the team there to play, and they wouldn't let the black catcher, Charles Thomas, they wouldn't let him stay in the room in the hotel in wow. Notre Dame. This, Mr. Ricky finally got him to let him sleep in his room, but they, they put a rollaway bed in, and Mr. Ricky's story was that Charles Thomas sat on the, he was his star catcher, he sat on his uh, his rollaway bed, scratching his black arms, 
saying, why, why, why did I have to be this color? Oh, man. And I think that was the, I think that was the flame that was lighted in Mr. Ricky's subconscious that said, someday, someday we're going to challenge this. And then it did happen in 1946, I think it was when he, it might have been 45 when he actually signed Jackie. But Amazing stuff. I can't tell you how many times I had nice chats with Nuke and also Al Downing about this, wondering if there was never a Branch Ricky, how would this world be different? Oh, yeah. Isn't that something? It really is. Well, I mean, as I told you, Mr. Ricky, he got criticized uh, kind of mockingly sometimes. that uh, He was tight with the, with the money. It was true. And yet he he was a good Christian. He promised his mother that he wouldn't abandon his faith in this roughshod uh, profession of professional baseball. And he was true to that. And uh, I don't know, we might have covered this before, but Jackie was also married, uh, raised by a strong Christian mother. And I think that bonded them in the early stages of their relationship. And when Jackie heard the charge, you you must turn the other cheek no matter what, he had a basis to understand that. And I think that bonding, you know, there's a book out by Ed Henry mm-hmm. called 42 Faith. If you haven't read it, it's a side of the relationship with Ricky and Robinson that you've never heard before. But it's dead true. Wow. It's it's honestly true how their their two faiths were the bonding that made it possible for Jackie to have the self discipline that he did. Fascinating stuff. By, by the way, did you know that Mr. Ricky was uh, more of a football guy than a baseball guy? I never heard him talk much about football, except there was rumors that uh, they were going to have a football team in Brooklyn, a pro team. Yeah. But it, it never got very much uh, speed. But That was his favorite sport, football. Yeah. I read up on that uh, a while back. <laughs> right. Wrap it up about Vero. So our last day there, what were the emotions like when you left? Was it sort of, hey, you know, it's time, it's not a big deal? Or did you really feel it inside because it was such a part of you? Well, I felt tied to Vero Beach real strongly because – We'd made a lot of friends in Vero over the years, and so it wasn't just baseball only, mm-hmm. but Vero Beach became uh, a very uh, popular to uh, my family. In fact, one of my uh, nephews moved into Vero Beach, still lives there, yeah. um, and has a business, uh, auto repair shop. And uh, no, I had a lot of emotions uh, with the home and stadium, my kids grew up, uh, I could be practicing uh, at some place, uh, uh, pitching strings or mounds or uh, batting cages, uh, pitching machines, sliding pits. I could be somewhere around in my training, and I could watch my boys uh, fishing off the pier at the little lake behind the stadium. Huh. And, and so uh, they were like... Uh, they were like eight and six or something like so that. So that was their park too, then, right? Oh, they they grew up on the training camp, absolutely. That's fantastic. And uh, 
So I had a lot of ties with Pharaoh. And, uh, of course, I trained there. My all, I told you all, all my years, but one. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I... I still, uh, I still hear people. Uh, there are still guys that write to me occasionally, who were uh, some of the security guards around Vero or on the staff of some kind at, at uh, Dodger Town. Beautiful. And some of them are still there. That's great. And by the way, you played a hell of a harmonica that day. Uh, is is that something you've been doing forever, or what? Yeah, I started playing when I was a kid. Um, I, yeah, it just was fun. I started playing the national anthem at the fantasy camps, and uh, that's how that got started. Oh, okay. I was thinking that could be your next career, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a little band, and uh, do you? We raise, oh yeah, we raise money for Special Olympics nice. uh, every year, and uh, we're getting ready to have our 29th uh, concert. My buddies are pickers and uh, fiddle players, and banjo. Uh, just we have a really good time. So yeah, I play a little harmonica with uh, a lady. Asked me, "What's the name of your band?" <clears throat> I said, "We don't have a name." Well, you gotta have a name. I gotta put it in the program. See, what kind of music you play? Oh, we just play old stuff. That's your name, old stuff. <laughs> my band, my band is named Old Stuff. That's great. <laughs> All right, so you were 20-6 and six in 1953. You threw a couple no-hitters. You're in an all-star game, Carl. Do you have, like, one or two things that totally stand out? Like, in the middle of the night, you'll just say, wow, that was just amazingly special. I have to pinch myself to believe not only a couple no-hitters, but against the Yankees, game three of the 53 series, I got knocked out in the first game. So they started me in the third game, and I beat the Yankees three to two, and got 14 strikeouts, which then was a World Series record. Yeah. The most unbelievable thing for a skinny kid from the west side of Anderson, Indiana, to hold for 10 years a World Series record for strikeouts. Koufax broke it in '63 with 15. Yeah, he had a lot of nerve, didn't he? <laughs> well, I'm glad it was a teammate. Yeah. And, of course, my smart, my smart kid, Gary, when I came home from the game when Koufax broke my record, he said, Dad, don't worry about that strikeout record. You still have it for right-handed pitchers. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so I said, it's a smart kid there. That is fantastic. Well, Carl, I really, really appreciate the time. You have no idea how special this was for me, and I hope you enjoyed talking to Vin as much as I enjoyed listening to you guys. Oh, I, I, I was almost stunned to go back to the years with Vince and remember him as a. You know, I told him you heard me. Yeah. I said when you when you showed up in 1950, a redheaded kid. I said, "There's a pup out of Red Barber." <laughs> He really, and he really was a kid, too, then, huh? Yes, he was. Well, he, uh, he he's out of college, so yep, yep. he's been in his early 20s. Well, yeah. that's, that's a kid to us. <laughs> oh, yeah, really. Absolutely. Right. But I, if I would have told you then, though, that he would still be doing it for 67 years, you'd look at me like I'm from another planet. No, you, you, know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't ever guess that, but 
you know, I said I mentioned it quickly today. Yeah. Vince Vince was good in uh, he he did golf. I think he might have done some football. I'm not sure. Oh yeah, that. he did the NFL. He did the Masters. He did uh, also tennis. He did a he did everything. Oh yeah. 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 Well, most people wouldn't know that, but uh, because he was so outstanding uh, in baseball, but uh, Vince Vince came me on. Uh, one time in spring training, yeah. I pitched my first three innings of the game, and then I showered. And Vince asked me to come up to the booth. And uh, this is spring game, and we were in, I forget where we were, any place. Uh, so he had me come up in the booth, and he's chatting with me. And uh, somebody got on second base, and they should have made it to third, but they stopped at second. And I made the comment, you know, there's ten ways that you can score from third with less than two outs than you can from second. And Vince said, oh, really? Well, what are those ten ways? I couldn't name them. I, I got to eight. And I, I, couldn't name the, I couldn't name the last two. So, so I, I, was, uh, I was kind of a flop. As a, although I did some broadcasting with Jack Buck. Oh, uh, you did? Later. Okay, that's great. With St. Yeah. Louis? Yes. Well, no, it was, uh, we did Game of the Week one year, and then I uh, did some uh, KMOX, uh, St. Louis. I did some uh, color games for them. Excellent. And, uh, but I, I only, I did that, I think, two years. Then they wanted me to move to St. Louis, but I couldn't do it. So that was the end of my broadcasting. Well, it sounds like you had a good time, and uh, Jack Buck was amazing, too. Oh yeah, it was a great, great experience. He, Jack, really wanted me to move and work with him in St. Louis, but it just my youngest son Jimmy was born with some handicap problems, and we just couldn't pull up stakes. But that was that's the way it was. I got you. Well, again, I appreciate the time, Carl, and uh, uh, it's good to know that the. Los Angeles Dodger fans get a little more insight into what was going on in Brooklyn. And never forget, Carl Erskine threw the first pitch as a Los Angeles Dodger, and that'll last forever. And it was a strike. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you remember that. (laughs) I thought about it all night. It's got to be a strike. Anyway, well, thank you, Ted, for the privilege of uh, getting with Vince and talking baseball with you. I appreciated all that. And I appreciate you. And by the way, uh, only people older than 30 or 40 still call him Vince. People never call him that anymore. And I, and I wrote in my book, it's Vince. That's who I know him from when I was a kid. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I don't know where that Vin he, came from. <laughs> well, you know, he was easy to know. Exactly. Uh, it wasn't a problem to know Vince Culley. That's for damn sure. Thanks, Carl. All the best, and uh, okay. we'll be in touch. Okay, anytime, Ted. Great to hear from you. My thanks again to Carl Erskine and, of course, Vin Scully for joining me here on Touching Greatness, the podcast. So until next time, I am still Ted Sobel. Thanks again for joining us as we certainly touch greatness if you're a Dodgers or just a good baseball fan. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.